You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor, your host. And today I want to talk about the nonprofit infrastructure. And I know most of you listening will be, what is he talking about? Nonprofit infrastructure? What's that all about? Do we actually have pipes and and roads and bridges and other forms of infrastructure like we do outside of nonprofits to deal with our lives? Actually, we do. There's a whole group of organizations that work to strengthen the nonprofit sector, to inspire giving and generosity. And like this, like this podcast, um, there are other organizations that help individual charities improve their work and organize them in ways that make them more effective. There are data gathering resources that help us learn about the nonprofit sector. All of these initiatives and all of this work helps the nonprofit sector function. Just think about all of the work going on to help people raise money and help organizations raise money. It doesn't just happen because someone went out and asked. There's a lot of study and a lot of learning that goes into really perfecting the art, really, of fundraising. So what about governance? How strong organizations are governed from the leadership standpoint? So there are a host of activities underway that are aimed at strengthening the nonprofit sector and providing the essential infrastructure that it needs in order to function well. And the United States has a very robust infrastructure, comparatively speaking, yet all societies have some organizations working to make sure that giving and nonprofit work, that is work that are works that's aimed at improving our society can, can actually function well. So with me today to talk about this is my longtime friend, Victoria Vrena, who is the Deputy Director of Philanthropic Partnerships at the Gates Foundation. And Victoria leads the giving ecosystems and giving by all work for the Philanthropic Partnerships team. And she's focused on policy and data and, as I mentioned, infrastructure efforts. In her case, she's trying to ensure that all people around the world are encouraged to give and to give effectively. So, Victoria, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thanks so much, Art. It's great to be here. 
Well, Victoria, you know how these shows go. I generally like to introduce our guests by talking about their lives and helping people understand what it is that got them to this point. In your case, what would you say was the driving motivation for you to do work in the nonprofit sector in general and in social good in particular? That's a great question, Art. You know, I never planned to work in like institutional philanthropy or nonprofit infrastructure. It's not the kind of thing you set out to do, right, when you're a kid. I was definitely going to change the world, right, and make the world better. Like that was a given. There's none of this business or any of that kind of stuff. I was not going to do anything like that. And so I started out as the first employee of a really tiny international women's organization. And I was leading an online network for women's organizations in all these different countries. And so that meant like email, right? This was like the mid 90s. Like you remember this time it was email and FTP sites. And so I got really deep into how you use technology for social change and how that can really fuel. It's one of the pieces of infrastructure, right? How you can connect and communicate and share information and knowledge to do that work on the front lines. I was really involved in global feminism and online community building was a big thing back then, still is, but it's not called that very much. But I got really frustrated by how hard it was to get resources for work on the front line. And I couldn't understand the way like the grants worked. We had grants from major foundations and from grants from USAID and things like that. But it was like such a patchy thing and I got really frustrated by how that worked. So I went to a a consulting firm, a small consulting firm that worked with big nonprofits and national nonprofits and foundations. And I thought, okay, this is, I'm going to figure this out. And then I really started to learn about the dynamics and the forces or the lack of market forces for foundations and kind of like how this system was really underperforming in some ways. I was still doing a lot of technology stuff. And by then we called it new media. I don't know if you remember that, the web Mm -hmm. had happened. So I was like the new media person and I was helping foundations create websites and build online communities and all that kind of stuff. And that led me to work with a guy named Mario Marino in the DC metro area. And he had made his good fortune in technology and was, was giving it back early on. Again, this is the 90s. And really looking at things like wiring schools and supporting entrepreneurship in the D.C. area. And that led me to really get deep in my region and the kind of the inequalities and the inequities in the D.C. metro region. And that got me super grounded here. I was working with him at Venture Philanthropy Partners. And Venture Philanthropy Partners is about trying to make a new model of philanthropy. So I was totally down for that. I was like, this is <laughs> the model I've seen so far. I'm not so sure about this. And Venture Philanthropy Partners was trying to get large amounts of money to really great organizations to help them grow. Because Mario, as an entrepreneur, couldn't understand this like $10,000 grant, $20,000 grant. He was like, what can anybody do with that? You know, you got to grow good work. It costs money. Like, how do you do that? So it was all about capacity building and all about scale. And so that was a fascinating experience. And it really led me to Gates because I I kept going up and up and up to change the system. 
like like doing the work of helping individual people is some of the most important work you can do, right? It's some of the hardest and most satisfying and most important work. But I found working in that frontline way to be so frustrating because you can only help so many people in a day, right? Five people, 10 people, you touch one life and it's amazing. It's life-changing, but I always wanted to kind of change all of it. <laughs> you know, So, so I, I, I learned early on, I was a systems person and I want to change the system. And so going to Gates is a good place to, to have a vantage point to, to affect that system. And so I've been here for 10 years now. And as you said, I lead our portfolios about data and policy and everyday giving and working to kind of change the market, change the infrastructure, change the system and all of those. And I think all along the way, it's been about the people, though, and the people that I work with. And the and that's the the honor I have to get to work with those people is what makes it all worthwhile in the end. Well, I want to talk about some of that. But first, you have to tell me why. You don't have to tell me. I hope you tell me why it is that you knew early on that you were going to be out there helping people and and trying to change the world. So I am one of three girls. I have two big sisters. And I myself now have three daughters. So that's totally weird. And I, I, the whole three sisters thing I, is repeating in my life. But I was yeah. the little sister. My sisters were older than me. And they went off to college when I was like 10 and 12. And they'd come home from college and they'd tell me about all these things they were learning. And this is, you know, go backwards from the 90s. This is the 80s, right? So they were really involved in like the anti-apartheid movement. And they'd come home and they'd tell me about prisoners of conscience and torture and apartheid and these things that were happening in the world. And I was like 10, 11, 12. I was pretty young. And so I couldn't exist in a world where those things were going on without trying to do something, right? And luckily, one of my sisters told me all about Amnesty International. And so I became a member, I signed up, and back then you would get you would get this package in the mail every month, right? It was like the most exciting thing. And it would, of course, talk about all these terrible things that are going on in the world. And then it would tell you what you could do. And the what you could do part was like writing a letter, right? I could do that. I was 12. I could write a letter. Mm-hmm. And, and I got so much satisfaction out of trying to change these things and thinking that, you know, I had the power just through a letter or whatever else to change things. One day they sent home a packet and they said, start an amnesty chapter in your town. And I lived in this little rural town in California. My dad was in the military and we had landed there. That was his base. And so I photocopied the sample flyer they gave me at the library and I hung it up and I put my address and Wednesday night, 7 p.m. and all this stuff. I was like, at this point, I'm wow. like 12, 13 or something. And then people came to the door <laughs> and knocked on the door. And my mom was like, no, you got to go away. They were like grownups, right? So that was that was the end of my first Amnesty chapter. And, and then in high school, I got to create a real one. And then I got to volunteer for Amnesty later. I got It was my first internship. It brought me to Washington, D.C. And again, like that satisfaction of like, like the things that go on in our world are like, if I couldn't do something about them, I would just crumple up in a little ball and stay in the closet, you know, it, it just like, you got to do something. But I, I've also learned along the way that I have a certain privilege, right? As a white middle-class woman, I can kind of make that choice. 
And, and I've worked with so many people in so many countries and, and communities where it's not really a choice. You know, you're, you're in these situations, you're confronted by these things, you're in the middle of conflict, whatever it is. And, and it's, it's a privilege to be able to come in and out of that work. And so I hold that with me too. And I try to remember that. And I try to appreciate that actually, that I kind of have this like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go try and do this work. Um, and, and just real respect for those who are in the midst of it every day. Well, it's hard. It's hard work. And you mentioned many organizations that you came up with that were aiming to do amazing things and and actually have achieved some pretty amazing things. You know, you talk about venture philanthropy partners and the Reno Institute and some of the work that you've done with young girls, connecting them east and west, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, really challenging work. But it seems that it scaled even both really small and it scaled in some cases really large, as we're going to find out as we have this conversation. But I think, as you're saying, both things may be important. Some of them may be, I don't know how you feel, but may be important just for you personally. You know, it's important to, to do that one thing that might change that one person's life. But then it's not long-term satisfying, right? Because you know that there's so much more suffering and challenge out there that people are dealing with. And you want to do more. You want to figure out how you can replicate what you did in ways that bring others in and help even more people. And I I would add, add that that was one of the reasons that we need this nonprofit infrastructure. But let me ask you this. In all of that work, leading up to where you are today, what were some of the moments where you might have felt, I'm not getting anywhere or I am getting somewhere and, you know, we need to double down on this or we didn't quite get it, but we learned some things from it, which is the other thing I think about nonprofit work that people have to understand everything you do, you're not going to succeed in, at least in a way you hope. But you got to learn and you got to try. So let me just let you chat a little bit about some of those thoughts. I think about, I don't know why the question leads me here, but I think about measurement and metrics. So in part of my career, when I was working at Venture Philanthropy Partners, one of my jobs was as vice president of communications and assessment. We were trying to really measure our impact and, you know, we were creating a new model for giving and philanthropy. So it was like, how's it working? And we wanted to have this this model for measuring so we could convince other funders that it was like worth putting money into the scale, into this capacity building, this kind of funding that most philanthropists don't give out. And so when you're measuring and you're trying to measure impact, especially for nonprofits that do frontline human service work, it's not a smooth path, right? And, and it also, when you're trying to change lives, it happens over years. And, and a lot of funders and a lot of frameworks and a lot of evaluations, they're measuring for a year that's a three-year study or whatever. It's a short term. And so it gets really hard to see the results right away. And you may see results that aren't great at first. And you got to have the patience and the trust 
and the right commitment to be able to still measure because you, you still got to know how you're doing. And, and what I think happens in our sector is we're like, it's really flawed. It's really hard to measure for all these reasons. So we're going to throw out measurement. We're going to throw out data. We're going to throw out impact. And that to me is worrisome. You know, you, you got to have some idea how you're doing. You know, as nonprofit leaders, you got to know how you're doing. And there's lots of different ways to know how you're doing. So you don't give up on measurement, but you need to have for the stakeholders you're reporting to, your board, your funders or whatever, they got to trust you and be in it for the long haul and understand the measurement and the ups and downs. So, you know, there's cases where it may not look exactly like something's working at first, but you got to have that commitment. And and I think about that again. The other thing that came to mind when you asked me that question is advocacy, right? When you're trying to advocate for something, and first of all, half the time you're trying to advocate for something to not happen. You know, so the right. win is that such and such a thing didn't happen, <laughs> which again isn't always like really exciting for funders, you know, when you're like, We worked on this for three years and X didn't happen. It's like, no, that's a good thing. But we funded at Gates, and this is a really geeky infrastructure kind of effort, but the effort to open up the Form 990 data, right? You know the Form 990. It's, yeah. the, it's the you know biggest source of information on nonprofits. And it was all locked up in these horrible PDFs and CD-ROMs and all this stuff at the IRS. And a bunch of folks in the sector, including you, were working to try and make it machine readable and all this stuff, like modern. And it took years Years and years and years. It took like 10 years, right? And luckily I was around to see most of that. And it was so satisfying when it happened. But for years, it'd be like, well, what progress is going on? You know, I'd have to report up the chain. It was like, well, we're still still working at it. <laughs> you know, this one thing happened or this one thing happened. But it's slow. It can be really slow. So um, that that's definitely something I've learned. And I guess in both those stories, I think part of the problem with the way we capitalize nonprofits is that we don't give folks enough time to do anything. One-year grants, three-year grants, five-year strategic plans. What, what are those to change a community? You know, I, I really, more and more, I look at that as, as one of just the basic things that's kind of uh, needs to be rethought in our funding system. Maybe even in our orientation, too, because... I think that all of us are eager to see change happen when we think it needs to happen. And so if you come into our sector with that mindset, I guess that's a good thing because you have a sense of urgency. But you also have to recognize that it does take years sometimes for some things to happen. And in some cases, we've been working at it maybe 100 years. I, I think about lots of disease fighting organizations they're making progress but we're still living with those diseases you know and so to think that you're going to be the one to end cancer tomorrow <laughs> you might be but uh the likelihood is that you're going to be part of a longer effort that is going to involve lots of people and ideas and even learning, learnings, I don't like to use the word failures, but tests, let's say, you know, where we, where we discover things that we can use later on, but we don't solve the problem right away. How, do, how does the public deal with that too? You know, I know nonprofit organizations want to solve problems. We want to address the ills and challenges that we face in our society. 
How do we make our donors appreciate the reality of what we're dealing with? Not all donors, I think, want the full picture or the explanation, right? So I think you got to know your donors. I think for those who are open to understanding the full complexity of like an issue and the progress you're making, then you totally engage them on that level. For those who just want the quick hit and the happy story and something that, that shows progress, you give them that. If there's anything I've learned, like one, if you know one foundation, you know one foundation. If you know <laughs> one high net worth donor, you know one high net worth donor. You know, Venture Philanthropy Partners, our first fund, we had 29 donors and they were all putting in like a million dollars, you know. So these are high net worth, very important donors. They all wanted something different out of this model. You know, they were all there for different reasons. And so you've got to know why they're there. And this is where some of the new digital tools can be helpful and how you can kind of personalize communications more and really figure out what the donor's looking for and then communicate back to them on that level. So what are some of the projects you're working on now that bring you excitement? Uh, there's a lot of things that bring me excitement. You know, we have created and support a big community of entrepreneurs and practitioners and researchers um, through our Greater Giving Summit program. So we bring folks together every couple of years. And the first thing we found when we got into this everyday giving space is that there's amazing work going on. But people were really disconnected from one another, you know, because there's like the donor advice fund space and the workplace giving space and the online giving platforms and the crowdfunding and then the researchers and the academic. And we just found there are a lot of opportunities to connect people. You have the big platforms and companies like Google and Facebook getting into this work. And then there's like great nonprofits like Global Giving and Donors Choose and IOBI, these platforms that have been doing this forever and all kinds of grassroots activists. So I think one of my favorite things and in my very first job with the Network of East West Women, you know, this is part of what I did, too. I love connecting people. And so we've built this community of over 300 people or so. And there's just kind of all kinds of amazing conversations going on in that group. And I can see connections and partnerships getting made all the time. And it's all to try and really bring innovation and energy to the online, like everyday giving space where there's a lot happening. I mean, I think there's some worries in our sector, as you and I have both been in conversations about, about this decline in everyday giving, that the same amount of money is being given but fewer people are participating, right? We've lost 20 million households over the last 10 years or so in making gifts to nonprofits. So that's a worry for nonprofits for a bunch of reasons. But on the other side, there's all kinds of giving that's not being counted. You know, there's mutual aid and there's people given directly on the street or in person to person giving. There's all kinds of generosity that's been happening, especially in the pandemic, that's just not being captured. So it's like Americans are still as generous as they always are, but it's being channeled in, in different ways. So there's like a concern there, but there's a total opportunity to like reimagine giving and reinvigorate it and support it in new ways. So that's one of the things I'm really excited about is this conversation that has not happened before. You know, it hasn't happened in the last 10 years and it's really exploding right now. And um, yeah, so that, that part's a lot of fun. Well, those are two great things. And 
I happen to be connected to you on both of them, which is really fun. I definitely agree. The Greater Giving Summit group is a fantastic group of people who are sharing all kinds of ideas and thoughts. It's fun to engage this group and to check my email every day and see something that someone said or someone's working on that gives me some ideas too. So congratulations for that. And those summits themselves are also very informative and I feel really honored to be a part of them. And you mentioned the work that is underway to try to assess the extent to which we're generous. I mentioned that a number of times in these podcasts. I wanted to just talk to you about something that you've done with this group, which is to create sort of this spectrum of giving. And I just thought when you presented this to our group, that it was so eye-opening because it for once just kind of positioned the various forms of generosity that we experience in our lives on a chart, (laughs) you know, where some things are probably doing very well and we probably don't need to pay so much attention to them and other things are maybe struggling a bit. And maybe those are the things that we, we want to focus on. And maybe some things we can't do anything about and we don't necessarily need to focus on them as much. But it looked like there were certain things like within the window of our being able to address on that continuum. And what do you see as maybe some opportunities for our society to address some of those things? And and what in your recollection are some of those key things? Things like I know just making a donation to a charity. Yep. Well, I, first I have to say like a lot of my thinking about this spectrum of generosity really comes from Lucy Bernholtz's book, How We Give Now. Lucy and a parcel of students held all of these focus groups, like really trying to understand how Americans think about their giving and their generosity. So anybody who's interested in this topic, you got to get Lucy's book, How We Give Now by Lucy Bernholtz. So I'm just standing on, on her, her great shoulders. But I I think one of the things I think about a lot and why I think it's helpful to define all these different types of giving and see where they're happening and how much is happening within these channels is I think there's sometimes a disconnect, and we've heard this from people, between the the people who want to give money, time, goods, and the people who need them. And, and sometimes, you know, people have the urge to do something, but they don't know where to go. They don't know how to find that exact thing they want to give to. I think there's um, a big interest these days in giving to um, it from institutional philanthropists and, and high net worth donors trying to give to local grassroots communities, trying to give more to what's called proximate leaders and organizations like people who are really close to the work and understand the work. But these big foundations and big donors don't know those people and they don't know how to find those people. And, and, you know, they may not be working in those communities. And so I, I see this need to better curate like information about where to give and to get it up to other people. Like one of the ways that happens a lot is through emergency funds. And we found that during COVID. So there were over 800 COVID emergency funds that were created in the U.S. alone. I mean, it was insane. There were like wow. so many funds, right? 
all over the place. And some of them were from for local communities and some were for identity-based communities. Some were for particular issues. But it was kind of hard to find like the fund that was in your area, right? And so it's a great way of getting resources to groups on the ground when there's an emergency and people will trust the fund. Like usually there's a big trust thing with giving. Like you know this so well, Art. Mm -hmm. You guys do some really great research on this. And so donors want to trust the organization they're giving to and know who it is. But at times of emergency, they'll kind of let go a little bit and they'll trust like whoever's managing that emergency fund. But we need to do more of that because there's great knowledge about who's doing great work that donors don't always have access to. And they don't want to research it necessarily. They don't want to take the time to do it. It's hard. And so the more we can find these pathways and, and funds and different kind of shortcuts for people to get money and resources to those who are doing the best work, I think the better off the sector will be. So I don't think that actually answers your question, but that's what, that's what it made me think of. No, no, it, it, it does. I think the, the truth is that there are many opportunities for people to give. The trick is to find the thing that will do what you want it to do and to understand exactly what it is you want to do, because I don't think that's really clear to people sometimes. You know, you you make a donation and you think you're giving to something that's going to perform a certain way, and it doesn't do that. It's not really set up to do that. So you've either been misled or you didn't pay close enough attention to what the organization was saying they were going to do. And I think there's that disconnected, it does cause some trust issues, which I think also, Victoria, is one of the reasons why we are seeing somewhat of a decline over a long period of years now in the number of people donating. Um, Trust has to play a role in that, and there are lots of others as well. Uh, Many of the infrastructure engines that we had that collected large sums of money from small donation donors smaller donations, they don't exist anymore. Or they're, you know, much more scaled down than they used to be. And so, you know, those people haven't found new ways to connect with nonprofits in the way that they have in the past. And, and maybe they're connecting in other ways, or maybe they're expressing their generosity, as you mentioned, in other ways. And that's certainly things that we have to pay, pay a lot more attention to. Let me ask you this, though. What's at risk? If, if the numbers continue in the same direction that we're seeing now, what is your, in your estimation, um, is at risk here? I think the biggest risk is for nonprofit organizations. You know, I think social change will always find its way. Like people who are trying to change the world in whatever way will find different kinds of resources and support. But for nonprofit organizations, if the majority of of your funding, if you're losing the base of like small everyday donors, you're not just losing their money. And small everyday donors, that money's great because it's just general operating, like no strings attached. It's the it's the yep. you know holy grail for a nonprofit. So it's great to have that support. But you're not just losing the money; you're losing 
the the champions you could have in those people, the advocates, the members, the the partners, that connection between organizations, local organizations and big organizations, and the everyday donor like starts to fray. And the, the other piece about, you know, there's a lot of reports we've been seeing, I'm sure you've seen the same thing about how much people want to give directly to other people. And that's fantastic, right? And it is so satisfying, again, to like directly help someone and know you've directly helped someone. And there's a huge need and purpose for that. But it doesn't support any of the kind of systems change, right? It doesn't help the people who are trying to change the, the things that got people into the positions they're in. And those really are nonprofits that are often trying to do that kind of work. So that work gets starved. So I, I think there there is a risk. Like, I think there's no risk to generosity. You know, there's no risk to any of that. You're, it's going to find its ways. But nonprofits need to be paying attention to this. And if donors are concerned with certain things or they're using different channels, nonprofits need to go to those channels and they need to meet those concerns. They need to figure out what those are. And that might mean partnering with other people. That might mean kind of letting letting go of some control. It might mean trying some new things. It might mean failing. But those are the, you got to evolve with the way donors are evolving right now. Well, Victoria, we're getting to the end and I just want to ask you, what is your sense of the future of the nonprofit infrastructure. Are we addressing some of the languishing issues that we're facing? One of which is how we fund it. You know, we're, we're not funding it as much as we should. I remember years ago when I first took my job as the, at the Wise Giving Alliance, I joined uh, with Ben Shute, who was at Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and we organized a group of funders and nonprofit infrastructure groups to talk about the future of the nonprofit infrastructure. And we were at the time about to lose several funders, several key funders that amounted to about $40 million annually of nonprofit uh, infrastructure funding. There were an increasing number of nonprofit organizations, infrastructure organizations coming on the scene. So it was a real crisis. I don't know if we've gotten past the crisis, honestly, or if it's gotten better or worse. What are you seeing today? So two different things. In the infrastructure itself, I see a lot of shifts that are exciting. So I think that the traditional kind of nonprofit infrastructure has been built up for institutional philanthropy, so like foundations and 501c3 nonprofits. But there's a bunch of other pieces of infrastructure that have been growing and growing and growing in the last two decades, like things for impact investing, uh, infrastructure for social enterprise, increasing infrastructure for high net worth donors. There's a bunch of donor networks and donor associations and then there's a bunch of, again, for-profit companies that are involved in giving in a bunch of different ways with high net worth and everyday donors. And then there's all kinds of community infrastructure for things like mutual aid networks and others that are beginning to develop more and more. 
So I think the the map of the infrastructure itself, an urban institute is working on like, again, an actual map. I don't know if it's going to be called a spectrum on what it's going to be called, but something trying to like depict this. So so I think that that it's really vibrant. Again, kind of like the Greater Giving Summit, I think there's opportunities for connections to be made between those pieces because as you pointed out, the resources for infrastructure itself is they're scarce. And so folks who are in this space have to work together, right? You've got to share resources because, you know, you've been at this a long time. I've been at this a long time. Infrastructure just does not sell. It is not sexy. It is not interesting. Plumbing, you know, any any right. metaphor you use, Jacob Harold and the scaffolding, right. you know, <laughs> you try to use all kinds of different metaphors to really get people to understand how important it is. And it is tough. And so, you know, we do see, I'll tell you where I see some glimmers of hope on this is in other countries. So like in India, we're seeing high net worth donors really understand why you've got to build up infrastructure for the sector. In China, we're seeing a lot of, of building of infrastructure for nonprofits, data and policy, all the kinds of pieces, capacity, the components we've talked about. South Africa, we're seeing a bunch of work and across Africa, really, in East Africa. So in other places where it's more nascent, you're seeing, and it's funny because they look to the American infrastructure as like the model. And, you know, it's like, well, we got some work to do. So I, I still see it being a hard sell on our side. A little bit of glimmers of hope, right? Ms. Kinsey Scott made some good investments in infrastructure, and hopefully that'll bring more attention to this space and how needed those kinds of gifts are. So other high net worth donors or corporate donors or any other kind of donors could follow in McKinsey Scott's shoes and use that map. She identified a lot of important organizations, and there's still more that are left out of her list that really could use some support. Well, Victoria, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me on the Heart of Giving podcast. And I just want to continue to press forward and support you in any way that I can. You've been a great leader for us. It's terrific that you hold the position that you do in this venerable philanthropy that we all look to for leadership in a whole variety of ways. I just want to say to you, keep pressing, keep doing your thing. Keep delivering the goods for all of us, not only here in the United States, but around the world. And let me just say to all of our our listeners as well, I want to thank you for joining. If this is the first time, you can find all of our other podcasts on all of the major podcast platforms. Many, many interesting people that we've interviewed over the last year and a half. And I know you'll find their stories compelling. And if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by making a gift at give.org to the Wise Giving Alliance or to Patreon. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. 
This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.